Today, uh, if you are watching for the very first time, you picked a great Sunday to do it. Today, we're kicking off a brand new series um, called Summer Remix. Uh, the idea behind the series has been this, that uh, one of the book reads that I had this last year, or this, uh, this summer so far, actually, uh, is a book called All Things Reconsidered by Knox McCoy, one of uh, a podcast guy that I, I like and follow and whatever. Uh, and in his book, he talks about the idea of reconsideration, how it's important for us every once in a while to kind of reconsider what we've kind of already decided, uh, whether we like something uh, or we don't like something. And yeah, because we all have those foods where at one point we thought, I don't like this. Uh, And then later on you try it with somebody who actually knows how to cook it. And you're like, actually, I found out I do like this. I I find that I I am into this or or vice versa or whatever. When it comes to specifically pop culture is kind of his angle uh, that he takes. The questions that he asks in this book is like, hey, is Justin Timberlake good? Is he he, he good? Like we don't, we know if from the acting standpoint, he's not good, right? Um, uh, and I know you'd say, well, he's really funny with Jimmy Fallon. Well, those are short stints, whatever. Any time that there's a script and like a, a plot, we're like, whatever. And, but then when it comes to music, we're like, Justin Timberlake's good, right? And we're like, I don't know. Is he good? I mean, was Justified lucky? I don't know how that works. Uh, or when it comes to like, is Will Ferrell funny? Like we, we have this like long-standing thing where we think Will Ferrell is funny and like in pieces and doses, he, absolutely. Like his SNL stuff is gold. His uh, SB acceptance speech, if you haven't watched that, you should Google it, not right now, but later, uh, was, was like pure brilliance. Um, but like, I don't know, for every Anchorman, there's like seven Eurovisions, right? And we're just like, is he funny anymore? There's At some point, you have to take something that has got this shelf life, reconsider it and be like, does it still work? Does it still play? Is it still what I thought it was? Or has it changed? Has my thinking on something changed, right? Because we go through evolutions in terms of our personal thinking. I used to think this way, but then kind of life happened. And then I got through my 20s, and then I got through my 30s, or then I had kids, or then I bought a house, or then I did this. And now I vote differently. I do think differently. I think differently. I, I whatever. Um, there, reconsideration is always in play because not everything holds up over the uh, over the over a shelf life. Everything has a shelf life or whatever, and we have to kind of reevaluate in that way. So, with that in mind, with the idea of reconsideration kind of being something that's been on my mind this summer specifically, um, I realized that um, I've been the primary communicator at this church community now for almost ten years. We'll be ten years old uh, this fall. And um, we have never really had uh, a lot of, te- like, we haven't had like a huge teaching team, all right? Um, so on average, I speak probably 42 to 45 Sundays a year doing a talk like this, which translates over 10 years to about 400 talks or so. And uh, by all accounts, not all of them good, probably in like a mid-level batting average for a major league baseball player, or, or even probably uh, as low as a Seattle Mariners bat an average in that way. So uh, not all of them have been good. I know that. Um, we try, but we try, we swing, we, we take a, a cut every time, right? Um, so I thought about what if I went and handpicked, go th- back through, handpick a few that I thought were actually good to see if they hold up, to see if the shelf life still works, um, to see if anything ha- has my, has my thought life changed on that, ha- has kind of now that we've been doing this for a, a length of time, was I trying to Im- impress people in the early days in Southridge Cafeteria that now that uh, we're so established, um, has it, would I, would I say it differently in this way. So here's the, but there's two criteria that I came up with. Um, one, I wanted to 
handpicked talks from at least four years old or older. So these are all going to be talks that were not delivered at the theater. These were back at Southridge days. Um, not that there's like a huge difference, but like just to try and be like, I don't, I don't know that my ch- thinking has changed in three years, but I, I think that at that gateway of four perhaps or so it has. And I had to remember it as being good, like f- walking away from that Sunday being like, that was really good. That was, that was a home run. Whether I got internal feedback from myself or my wife who always says things, good things, or, or somebody on staff or, or an email from somebody was like, man, that was just, that was a home run talk or whatever. So those are the things. So in 2014, um, we did a series called Asking for a Friend. Um, and it was, in, it was in February of 2014. So just to kind of like rewind a little bit, that's six years ago almost, uh, or, or just over six years ago, excuse me. Um, and during that time in the world, the Sochi Winter Olympics were taking place. Um, El Chapo, uh, the drug cartel guy, had just gotten arrested. So this is like the era, I mean, that feels like forever ago, right? So this is, this is kind of, we're, we're going back in time a little bit. So 2014, Asking for a Friend. And the idea behind the series, and I'm not going to read you the series, I'm just picking one thing from a message, and that's what we'll do for the rest of the, the summer remix series. Um, the idea behind the series, though, in general, uh, was the idea that uh, we all have questions about what, what exactly one signs up for uh, when they sign on to become a Christian. And if you've been a part of Eastlake before, um, you know that it's not like um, a class that you go to or a little card that you fill out and tear off and put in the bucket or anything like that. Uh, we really, and that's been kind of an MO for us. Um, and it's, it's been, it's been uh, a big shift or a change from some people who come from church backgrounds. Like, hey, Brent, you never do altar calls. You never do, everybody close your eyes, um, and then nobody's closing their eyes, and raise your hand if you feel, or just look at me, everybody just look at me, and and, you know, everybody's eyes are closed, and I'm supposed to be up here going, I see that hand, I see those eyes, whatever. Uh, I I wouldn't do any of that. Like, we don't create clear lines in the sand, and maybe that's a bother for you. Maybe you wish it was more clearly delineated what it means to sign on for this. Our, my assumption is os, like osmosis, like you just get in and then and every once in a while you just, I believe that or I don't believe that internally and you never have to sign on to anything. It's just like internally you're making your own judgment calls because I just think that that's how it works for me in so many different arenas and why wouldn't it work in the religious arena as well? However, at some point there becomes this thing where I ask myself, uh, again, like, do I like Will Ferrell? Like, do I, am I, in, in, in this arena, in the church arena, like, am I a Christian? Am I, am I, do I believe all of this? I mean, there, there's definitely still some questions. I don't know anything, uh, you know, about the, the, how the Bible works or whatever. I, I, but am I, it, where you'd find yourself going, is that me now? Like when Brent talks and he says, hey, if you're a Christian, I always qualify things like, hey, if you're a Christian, you don't get the option here. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And in those moments, do you find yourself now going, Oh, that now includes me. And I never like signed anything and I never raised a hand, but I am freely associating myself with the binding of that teaching. Like I now need to listen to this or am I still kind of hands off? And, and if I am, like what is all included in that sort of thing? Like that's, the, that's a big tension point. We, we've said for, from the very beginning, we want to be a church for unchurched people. There's never a countdown clock here about, hey, you got to believe this by a certain time or sign something by a certain time or get out of here. Um, I know personally, we have people who um, have been here for an extended period of time who go, I do not consider myself a Christian, but I value the community that's a part of this thing. I like the friends that I've made here. I like what you offer for my kids. I like free coffee. I like all kinds of things. I'm going to continue to come. 
I'm going to continue to serve and I'm going to continue to fund it and financially, but I'm not sure what I believe yet. Or I don't think I believe all the things that you believe, Brent. And we're always okay with that. I'm always okay with that. Uh, I do not want like this homogenized, like we all believe the same things, right? Pat ourselves on the back and we go our separate ways. So if you're not a Christian, this kind of stuff or this conversation specifically is perfect for you because like me, you've been conditioned and I've been conditioned to hate signing up for anything. I, it, when I was a kid, when we would go to the fair, I'd sign, if there was like a contest and you could win this set of knives, right? I'm signing up for everything and I'm, and I'm putting my name down on everything. And then lo and behold, I never won anything. Uh, and so then I just realized all like the only thing I ever won were emails. Um, or then once in a while, I remember getting uh, an envelope in the mail from Publishers Clearinghouse. And I don't even know if they're doing anything. This might be an old analogy, right? This was six years ago. Uh, but I remember as a kid getting those, those, those envelopes that say, you've already won. We just need your contact information. And then like this picture of like the guy handing out balloons and a big giant check at a door and thinking to myself, what do I got to do to get that? And it's really hard to be able to communicate to a uh, like 12 year old kid. The thing that you've already won is the opportunity to buy a magazine subscription at full retail price. uh, And that's what you've won. And it's not that great. And so it was like this constant struggle. Like at some point you get conditioned, like there is no such thing as a free lunch. Like I'm not just going to sign up for stuff. If I drop my business card in a little fishbowl, that's one thing, but like giving you personal information, saying, yes, you can t- contact me. When I click on the th- things on the emails and say, yeah, add me to your list, then I'm quick to unsubscribe. I mean, like we just know, like I don't, I feel like I'm fully connected already. We always go into things going, I'm fully connected. And then we add this church thing in uh, and there's this opportunity again to like get our weekly and sign up and, and go to church. And, be, you know, and I say, hey, if you consider yourself a Christian, you're like, I don't know where I stand on that because I don't know what's all involved in signing up for that. That's a big tricky piece of the, the puzzle for us. Imagine being interested and finding out more, but there's something in you that wants to retain the appearance of being disinterested right? I want to know more, but I don't want to act like I know more. So I I couch it in these terms of asking for a friend. That was the entire premise behind the series. And it works. And it works really well because there's this this, uh, story that the author of of the book of John, John wrote about in remembering his version of the life and the teaching of Jesus, where it highlights somebody who did exactly this. I'd like to know more, but I'd like to do it on my terms. And I'd like to couch it in terms of I'm asking for a friend, sort of like, uh, I'm interested, but I want to appear disinterested in this way. It shows up in uh, chapter three of the book of John. Uh, And it says this, there was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus, a ruler of the Judeans. Now, uh, we know this if you've grown up in church before, but the Pharisees, like in those day, in in that day and age, uh, Judaism was the religion in Israel. That was the dominant thing. It came through uh, like the the Hebrew, the Old Testament scriptures kind of delineated what it meant to be a Jew. You had to go through a process of learning the Torah. You had to be circumcised. You had to do this. These were people chosen by God. That was their religious system. They had tabernacles. They had synagogues. They had pastors and priests. They didn't call them pastors. They called them priests or rulers or whatever. And in those category of of priests and religious leaders of that day, there were different categories of what they were. Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, zealots, whatever. Pharisees was one of them. They were the ones in the controlling authority. They had the majority at that time. So Pharisees show up a lot in the New Testament scriptures, especially the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus. They're typically his his antithesis. They're they're, they're the people who are uh, against everything he's for. They're the antagonist in the story. When they show up, there's like, 
like a background music involved in this. One of them is named Nicodemus. And we know that when he's saying this, a ruler of the Judeans, what, they're, what he's saying and communicating is, this isn't just a Pharisee. This is a significant piece of the puzzle. Like he's a big player. He's a big fish. He's a whale in this world. And we know this too, uh, because later on, um, he will be one of the guys who goes and requests the body of Jesus from Pilate after the crucifixion of Jesus, who leverages his own, like at risk of his own authority to get a, a favor through to be able to bury Jesus' body instead of letting it hang, which is the typical crucifixion process. And Pilate concedes. So we know he's got influence. All right. So this is a, this is a big player in this moment. He came to Jesus uh, by night. Now this is a big factor that John wants us to make aware of. Um, why not only like, does he request an audience from Jesus, which would be a big thing, but he does it in a covert way. He does it through the shroud of darkness. And it's probably because um, he had a lot to lose. It could be, maybe it was like the most convenient time to get like a, an actual conversation done because there's the business of the day. But I tend to think that he did this because when you want to do something, when you want to explore an option, um, but you don't want people to see what you're doing, you typically go to the pot store at night, right? For the first, anyways, uh, that's a weird analogy, but it works. He wanted something, but didn't want people to know what he was about. So he goes by night. And he says this to him, Rabbi, he said to him, we, and this is interesting. I added this little parenthesis in, but plural. He's trying to give credit to Jesus here. There's there's going to be a bunch of power dynamics at play here, but he uses this we plural pronoun to try and take the attention off of himself. Like, I don't need this, but like we have something together. He did not come on behalf of the Pharisees. He came as an individual who had a lot of questions about what it means to sign up for this thing. What does it mean to follow you? What do you expect from me? What do you want from me? But at the risk of being highlighted as an individual, he begins to use these pluralistic pronouns to try and defer it to say, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Nobody can do these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. This is... There's so many different power dynamics at play that I think need to be highlighted in this. One, it's all about this idea of turf and timing. He's doing this on his terms. He's coming as somebody, Nicodemus would be like that person that you know who has been so ingrained in a community um, for an extended period of time who's done uh, so many different things for the good of a lot of people that uh, everybody kind of looks at Nicodemus as a pillar in that sort of society. uh, As an example, um, my dad has been a pastor in this Tri-Cities community for about 25 years. And anytime I go anywhere and uh, mix with sort of the evangelical church community, right, from other churches or whatever, I'm Daryl's son, all right? My dad has been like a big peace in a lot of different things. If he was to sign on for something, some sort of an event, like they hosted a, um, like a big convoy of hope giveaway thing in the park. And the fact that if you can get like my dad on board with something like that, um, he's one of those people that like, it's, there's just an automatic influence. There's an automatic change in your pocket for that. If Daryl can get behind something and and those, those things exist, not just in the church world, those things exist in, in just our community in general. If you're hosting a fundraiser, if you can get the certain somebody's, if you can get the right people in the door. If you can say to them, 
them, listen, and we do this for our Drinks for Drinks event. Can we please put your logo on our poster? You provide a level of credibility to this event that we could not otherwise get. Now, the problem with that is that person has more to lose if this event goes south. I remember when we first started this church, um, back when we moved home in August of 2010, I was having conversations with a couple of people going, hey, we want to start a church where people don't typically like church. It's really unlike anything that you've probably been a part of. And if you're part of a church currently and you're really happy with where you're at, then please stay where you're at um, because we're not trying to like pull other people from everywhere else. And I had a conversation with a guy named Rich Ward. Many of you know Rich. In fact, um, at the very beginning, Rich was uh, a area director for Young Life for Kennewick and Richland and was so well connected in this community um, that for the first six months that we were open, I would say, honestly, half of our connect cards that come through, when it would say, how did you hear about Eastlake? It would just be Rich Ward. Um, And I remember having a conversation with me going, all right, I like this idea. It feels like Young Life for adults, this like church for, uh, you know, unchurched people. Um, and him and I would have had like three different coffee conversations, all of them pretty much the same. And I could tell by the second one, all he's doing is f- like feeling me out. Like, are you weird? Like, is this going to, is this going to go south? Listen, if I attach my name to this, and he wasn't on staff, it wasn't like that, but if I go to this, and if I kind of uh, promote this on my Facebook page or my you know, Instagram or whatever, if I talk about this, um, like it's going to affect things. Like people are going to come, but if it goes south, I have more to lose than you do. This is his, and he never said that to me, but by the second meeting, I got that feeling, right? And, and honestly, I don't, there's, there's probably, there's probably uh, at least 50 people watching this right now or, or watching this on replay or whatever, who, who you came because of Rich Ward or an influence of, you know, he invited somebody who invited you or whatever, right? You wouldn't be here without him. <clears throat> I can't even imagine what this community, <clears throat> excuse me, would look like had it not been for that influence early on. But he's, he had this difficult, he was in this difficult position. If I sign on for this and this goes south, I have more to lose than you do. And that's exactly what's at play in this scenario too. Nicodemus, a person of stature, of authority, a person who's well-respected in the community, is coming to this upstart sort of new neo-religious, neo-Judaism. You're, you're talking about Judaism, but like there's something more to this, and you keep referring to yourself as <clears throat> son of God, or, or other people are for you, and you're not denying it, or whatever. Um, and I'm interested. Like, there, there are things that you're doing I can't deny. Um, and I want to know more but if this goes south, I lose more than you do. I have more to lose in this way. And it's a risk for me in this way. <clears throat> so Jesus responds to this in verse three. Let me tell you the solemn truth. Unless somebody has been born from above, and I put in parentheses this idea of born again, because that's the term that you're probably familiar with if you grew up in church or went to summer camp or, or whatever, or watched TV late at night and you didn't change the channel when the, on the TV preacher was talking about. Um, but the actual text, and this is born from above, they won't be able to see God's kingdom. Now, it's interesting to be born from above, this word that he's like, pulling from out of nowhere, right? Um, it wasn't a common term, which as, as we'll see by Nicodemus's response, um, it wasn't a term that he's used to. It wasn't like he was 
throwing this out and this was kind of a normal parlance for the time. This was an odd way of doing things, but he's trying to illustrate to undergo this, this change that what I'm expecting of you is so radical. It's so different from what you're used to. It's such a massive new undercurrent of, of thinking. It's almost like a new birth. Perhaps the best way to describe it is like this new birth to be born from above to which then Nicodemus responds. You're not telling me that they can go, uh, or how can somebody possibly be born? Asked Nicodemus when they're old. This is his response. How, how does somebody get born from above again? Which is a fair question um, that I would argue most of us at one point wouldn't ask. If you had heard Jesus say all of this, then our response would be typically, oh, great. Yeah, thanks, Jesus. I'll make sure to write that down in my journal. And in the, in the back of our minds, we're going, I don't get it. But like, I don't want to be the dumb guy who like has to ask the question. Uh, I'll just kind of write it down. Um, at best, we might say something like this. Awesome. Like, I totally get what you're saying. But like, I have a friend who like doesn't, um, he's like sort of struggling with some of the details on this. And you're so much more eloquent than me and how you say it and putting things into words. If you could just explain it a bit more, not for me, of course, I'm asking for a friend in this way, what you mean by this idea of born from above, this radical change, like what exactly are you expecting from me? And then he goes on in verse four. And he says, you're not telling me they can go back a second time into the mother's womb and be born again, are you? And he incorporates humor here. It's like, this is like the ultimate Jim Halpert looks at the camera cue, right? Like, you're not telling me like all, all of this sort of stuff. Um, and he, and he, here's his real question in all of this. What are you asking of me? If I was to risk everything and sign on for your teaching... And Nicodemus is going, I have my own disciples and rabbis. They're going to do whatever I kind of tell them to do, this way of thinking. If I was to become a disciple of you and to uh, associate myself with you, I would bring with me a handful or maybe a large group of people who would then reflect differently on you. What are you asking of me and what, what, what would I expect to be able to tell them in this way? What's it going to take for me to be good according to your standards or to qualify for... Um, good. This is a big, massive question. This is a question that, um, that we all have in, in life, um, in all kinds of different religions. W- what does it take to be good in your religion? Um, especially if we come to it with like this uh, unknowing of w- what's going on with, you know, wh- what happens at a Jehovah's Witness thing? What happens in a Mormon thing? What happens out of this or that and the other thing? What does it mean? To, what's your vision of the good life? What does it mean to be, to qualify as good? What must one do to be saved or whatever? What's required of me and all of my meanness? It's the same question that we all have. And he shrouds it in humor like I do a lot of time when I'm secure about something. But he reveals an intense longing in spite of everything he has going for him. He's taken a massive risk here. Jesus communicates something that is mildly uh, incoherent in terms of the vernacular of that day and what is common understanding. He's using this born from above phrase. And instead of backing away or just saying, okay, I got it. Cool. No more questions. Good. He presses in and it does the only thing he knows how to, which is again, humor in this way. And maybe you've never read it like this before. Maybe this is like the first time you've heard of the story of Nicodemus. But when I remember teaching this and being like, gosh, he's such a, Nicodemus is such a uh, influential person for me because I see myself so much in this. I see myself in the way that he incorporates humor, that he presses, that he refu- that he l- like defers to plural, plural pronouns because of the awkwardness of I, I, you know, identifying myself in this. I'm trying to cover my bases. I'm taking a risk, but I'm also hedging my bets a little bit. 
Like well, there's a little bit of Nicodemus in me and, and perhaps in you in this way. And, and there's something about it that gets people like me sitting on the edge of my seat, hoping that Jesus gives an answer uh, that I can understand in this way. It's almost like he said this, you talk about being born again. You talk about this radical, fundamental change, which is so necessary. And I know that change is going to be necessary. I know that anytime I'm faced with somebody who is... Um, like you, Jesus, or anytime I come into grips with something uh, as a way of teaching or a, a, a way of virtue, or I, I, know the, I know the brokenness within myself. So anytime I come up against the holiness or the goodness or the rightness of something that is true, pure, and, and whatever, I understand that there's going to be some change. I'm not coming to you hoping that you'll just affirm everything about me right? Hopefully that you don't come to church or approach the Bible in that way of please just affirm everything about me. Like I want, if I'm, if I know that I'm sick, I don't want to go to a doctor for him to tell me you're doing just fine. Everything you're doing is perfect. At some point I want him to be like, I know what's causing you this pain in your stomach. I know what's causing you this pain. I know why you have headaches. I know why you have something. And here's what I want answers from you. I don't want affirmation from you, right? I mean, affirmation feels good, but then I go home to my own brokenness and, and, and whatever. I, I need something different. So that's what I love about this. He's going to this going, listen, I know that some change is necessary. You talk about this birth from above or this rebirth or whatever. My experience has been the terms that I'm understanding this, it feels like it's impossible. I'd like to change. I'd like to make a radical change. But I know that for the most part, people are who they say they are. People all do the things that they all have always done. We can make minor shifts and changes along the way. But like a radical shift just doesn't seem really true possible. I mean, you hear stories about it, but like in my own personal life, it just feels like I, I, I'm pretty close, like minor degrees of change. It's kind of how this thing works. Anyways, it's the eternal problem of somebody who wants to be changed and who cannot change himself. You say radical change. I'd like to think I could do that. I don't know that I could do it. How do I know what I'm supposed to do? What do you want from me? How do I know that I'm winning? What, what is it going to take to win? And I don't need affirmation that I'm winning. I just need a clear path towards winning and if it is radical, I need, I'm going to need some help to get there. That's the piece that's interesting. It is interesting, too, that throughout different periods of history, people have reacted differently to the problem of Christianity. And when I say problem of Christianity, what I mean is this. In Christianity, we're told to be good at the same time that we're told that we're forgiven for not being good. Depending on where you read and what you read or what church you attend or what book you read by some Christian author, you're either going to read one version of um, we need to do better and try harder or, um, you know, God's grace is sufficient for you and uh, there's now therefore no condemnation. So for one instance, you've got this passage in First Peter. Peter's talking to his church and he's saying, as obedient children, do not be conformed by the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I said a few series ago that that means like this wholeness, like you shall be whole, you shall be uh, in line with your own person as your heavenly father is whole. But clearly there's this call to a certain level of righteousness or virtuous living, or um, you know who you should be, act in that way. Do live into your identity more, like this reaching up, like I'm not affirming you in your brokenness, I'm calling you towards something greater. That's always been a part of Christianity. And on the flip side, there's also the talk about the no condemnation piece from in, in Romans uh, chapter eight, verses one through three with Paul. And he says this in, in, in that phrase, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Um, uh, from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law uh, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So, 
you've got these two different types of teachings. You've got these two different types of churches. One church says, do more, do more, do more, do more. Another church says, you're already loved. You're already loved. You're already loved. Grace, 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 grace. Um, and uh, so what do you, you know, if, if you're only, if your diet is only on one of these two sides, it's really kind of a, this flawed thing. Cause the true, I think the essence of Christianity is this both and, and, and I really wanted Eastlake and I, I want to continue to have Eastlake be a community where we are um, affirmed in, in, in our good, the goodness of creation and affirmed in that God does truly love you no matter what. Right. But then also uh, this idea of, um, uh, we are not living into that. Like our response to that is oftentimes broken. And that's why we experience pain and loss and suffering and, and injustice and, and all these kinds of things in this world. Though it was perfect and though his love is perfect, um, I have some things I need to work on in my own personal life. And I've never arrived. I've never arrived. You've never arrived. We're all kind of works in progress. That's why the brokenness exists in the church. That's why you're so frustrated with the hypocrisy that is so often involved in, in, in times in, in church and religious scenarios and politics and whatever and just the world in general. Um, but like we live within this tension. So how are we to live with the tension between demand over here and mercy over here? The demand to do something more and the mercy of you can never do enough. The change is too radical in this way. So here was my response four years ago. Let's just see if it holds up like the whole idea of the reconsideration piece. The extent of God's mercy is precisely what is required to fill the space between what you ought to do and what you do. I'm going to read that again. The extent of God's mercy is precisely what is required to fill the space between what you ought to do and what you do. There is a, uh, a sense of oughtness in terms of how I should live. And then there's the sense of reality in terms of how I actually live. And I cannot be satisfied um, with the, the status being consistently separated. Um, it's like this idea that I am called and the reason that I'm growing my journey of faith is to try and close that gap to uh, that I know your mercy God extends in this way um, but it's my uh, responsibility it, it's my response to your grace that I try and work on this and, and, and make myself more true not to impress you you're not impressed by this um, but to really live into the identity that has been given to me. Both the demands and the mercy are tailored for each of us so that none of us can say, well, I've done enough uh, or more or less, like, or much less or whatever. Um, he or they or whatever accusationally have not done enough. Jesus pronounces forgiveness to a prostitute who cleans his feet while she received abuse from the good people watching her do it. He looks at this prostitute and says, you are good while all these people who everybody else would say is good are criticizing her in this way. What kind of God is this who congratulates bad people for doing small things and rewards good people for doing big things? Certainly not the one that most of us have created for ourselves. In answer to the question, how much good must I do? His answer is always going to be more. Um, but in response and can, with that tension in mind, um, we also then ask the question, must I be better than that person is? And his reply constantly is, you must be better than you currently are. And he never judges us based on some objective moral scale or even the amount of progress that I've made on my personal journey. Instead, he looks at me and only me. He looks at me and only me. And he says, whatever good you do makes me glad, but no amount of good that you do satisfies me. Still, I will be satisfied, not by your love, but my own perfect love by giving from myself what you 
would not give and could not give. The only honest response to this offer of God, the only response that takes it quite seriously is the one that puts into action the words, help me then to make you glad, to narrow the gap that your mercy fills. That this is the prayer of the hopeful person who is on this journey, who looks at their life and goes, definitely not perfect, looks at the call to, um, to rise up to better standards and goes, I, I accept that. I don't need affirmation in my brokenness. Um, I need, I need uh, an understanding of there's a gap of mercy and my job is to do whatever it takes to kind of close that gap. And my prayer, my, my daily prayer, whether I say it in words or not, is this help me then to make you glad to narrow the gap that your mercy fills and what you see over over and over and over again in scripture of the, the heroes of the Old Testament, the people, the heroes of the New Testament who get this right, who live in this exact way. David, who writes these Psalms who, uh, of like of his own personal brokenness, who um, has this sin with Bathsheba and instead of hiding it, writes a song about it, not to celebrate it, but to say in my brokenness, I, uh, like, who are you? Who am I that you would love somebody as broken as me? Right? Who am I to be a person of, uh, of uh, uh, an object of your love or an object of your mercy, an object of your justice? When, when human beings live in that state, there is a path of humility that does not come from the pride of being good enough. Um, it is a, uh, a status. It is a, a, a mindset that says, I walk humbly. I'm trying my best. I'm doing the best with what I've got. And I know there's an, a certain oughtness of where I ought to be. And I also understand that my life, that I am loved fully in spite of that. And I'm moving towards being better than I currently am and trusting in your grace in the meantime in this way. Help me then to make you glad to narrow the gap that your mercy fills. And I think that that has been a truism of what a path towards wholeness and a path towards um, personal conviction of faith absolutely looks like at Eastlake. And, and we talked about it six years ago. And although I might not say it every single week, I, I hope that that kind of idea like permeates everything that we talk about and continues to be a status of where do I stand? Where do I stand? What's expected of me? What's expected of me? How do I grow? How do I grow? How do I grow? That we live with the tension that every week there's the tension of, you know, uh, there's an oughtness uh, and then there's also mercy, oughtness and mercy in this way. So I think it holds up and I'm, I was so thankful to have a chance to kind of rehash this and uh, really uh, affirm that I think that we were on the right path then and that continues to be uh, part of it for today.